Well, that's a good thought. I surrender. There's a certain freedom in surrendering to God. When you surrender, you don't want to just surrender to anybody, but if the one who you're surrendering to is totally adequate and trustworthy and loving, then it's really a joy to be able to surrender to him. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that uh, you love us and there's no fear in love, that we don't have to be afraid of you and your will, even though sometimes you might call us to hard things. But thank you, Lord, that you are good and that you are reliable, that we can uh, put our whole trust in you, knowing that that's really ultimately the best thing for our lives as well. Uh, bless us, O oh Lord, we pray. Thank you that you uh, share with us your word, and I pray that your spirit would now use your word to touch us, to reveal yourself, and to draw us close to you that you might transform us. Thank you, Lord. We give this time to you. We pray for your work. We pray for your blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, well, I want to just thank you. I know some of you were praying for us. I was part of a small team of uh, uh, six people, and we were uh, just in a, a restricted country in Asia, and uh, I just returned on Friday, the day before yesterday, but I know many of you were praying for our team, and I really appreciate it. God watched over us. We were safe and uh, protected, and God used us in ministry to the people there in that city. Uh, one of the things that happened was uh, the day that I got there, it was um, Thursday, July, I mean, September, September 7th. I think it was September 7th, yeah. And uh, the day I got there, uh, one of the reasons I went was to perform a wedding. This is the first time I've ever done a wedding in that country. First time I've ever done a double wedding. Two couples wanted to get married. And these two couples are, are people that we've known for some years, a few years, and we've seen them come to faith in, in Jesus. Uh, so the, both brides and both grooms uh, are, have been Christians less than five years or so, six years. And um, a couple of them I had the opportunity to baptize in that country. We have to do secret baptisms in hotel bathtubs and hot springs and places like that. But it was just a, a wonderful uh, privilege to be able to go there to perform this double wedding and also to speak in some house churches. And Anyway, uh, the second day I got there was uh, the wedding rehearsal. And when I was at the wedding rehearsal, there's a friend of mine, and, and she's a house church leader, and she was going to translate the wedding for me. And so she was uh, at the rehearsal. And this was on Friday, a week ago Friday. And she told me that day, she said, yesterday, uh, our nation's leaders issued a new set of rules for uh, restricting uh, Christian faith. And uh, basically, I, I, you know, I don't know all the details of it, but basically, I guess what the government said was that beginning in 2018, which is only a few months from now, but beginning in 2018, unregistered churches are going to be forbidden to meet. And I thought, you know, a lot of, I have a lot of friends are, that are in unregistered house churches, and uh, I think when I was there for eight days this past week and a half, uh, I spoke six times in four different house churches or something like that. And um, it's a wonderful ministry. The Spirit of God is moving. People are coming to faith. But there's a government crackdown a coming. And uh, so uh, I would just want to ask you to keep praying uh, for the, the believers. And I want you to keep praying that the gospel would go forward. Actually, uh, one of the nights I was teaching in a house church, we were talking about the Holy Spirit and trying to learn how to listen to the Lord and, and hear God's voice. And so we did a kind of a listening prayer exercise, 
And that night, I, I, I just felt we were in this listening prayer time, and I felt like the Lord was impressing something on me that I was supposed to share with them. And what he said was, stand firm in your faith. Stand firm in your faith. And I didn't know all of why I was being led to, to say that, but I, I felt like maybe it's in relationship to these uh, heightened uh, restrictions on the churches that we know are coming. And another man who was uh, in that group, he's a lawyer, he's a very prominent person, and he's also a very devout follower of Jesus. But, but in his listening prayer time, he said what he received from the Lord was the words, don't be afraid. So I heard him say, don't be afraid. I'm thinking the Lord is telling me, tell these people, stand firm in your faith. And it just gave me this sense of uh, there's going to be maybe some heightened pressure on the Christians and on the unregistered churches in that land. So uh, just want to ask you to keep praying, and I'm going to keep praying, and we're going to keep going as long as God uh, allows us to go. But uh, I've been going twice a year to that city, and uh, I think this was my 11th time in the last five and a half years, and some of us have just really felt called to do whatever we can to, to support the Christians and the churches and to help spread the good news of Jesus in that, in that area. So anyway, I, I, I'm not mentioning the country because this goes on, on our website and all that, and, um, but most of you know what I'm talking about. So please be diligent and pray. So I, I got to thinking about this. Why is it that these uh, Christians in this country in Asia uh, would still stand firm and be steadfast in their faith even though there's a increasing government pressure and, and maybe the threat that the, the government is going to start arresting church leaders or breaking up churches and raiding churches. We don't know how this is all going to play out and what's going to happen. But you know what struck me was the believers that I talked with, they are not deterred. They're not intimidated. They're not afraid. Nobody's saying, oh, I guess we can't have church anymore because the government's saying we can't do it. I think they're just saying, well, we'll see what happens, but this is all in the Lord's hands, but we belong to him, and we're going to be faithful to him, and we're going to just play this thing out and, and see what happens. And I love that. I just feel like one of the things you see in communist countries or countries where there's some oppression of the church and, and Christianity is you don't see nominal Christians there. You don't see people who are just in Christians in name only because it's, it's politically correct or it, it's uh, popular or something. So what I've seen is that when you meet Christians there, usually they recognize they're taking some risks and they're paying some cost. And uh, so I don't want to say they're better Christians than, than people here, but, but I do feel like uh, the pressure and the oppression and the risk and sometimes danger in a way purifies the church. That, that we see who's really serious about their faith, who's willing to pay some cost in order to follow Jesus. Why do they do that? Well, I suppose they've experienced so much of the goodness of God and the grace of God, and they've given their lives to him, and they're saying, you know, we're not going to forsake the Lord just because some government regulations are putting some pressure on us. And, you know, we're in this uh, series on Ephesians right now. The series is called This Is Us. Today's the third message in a 12-week series. Uh, but I love this because uh, Ephesians actually, and when you read it carefully, you see that a lot of it is taking place among, you know, first century Christians in Asia Minor, what is now a modern day Turkey. But what you see is there is a spiritual warfare, warfare kind of backdrop to the book of Ephesians. And there's some spiritual battles, and we'll see a little bit about that in our passage today. The message today is called A Life of Resurrection. And our passage is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. 
And uh, one of the things we looked at when we looked at chapter 1, we saw that God has this cosmic plan which is being set in motion, and the plan is to unite all things in Christ, right? And to sum up all things and bring things together in Christ. But the first step in that plan now is going to be that he's got to take people, individuals, and he's got he's to bring them from spiritual death to spiritual life. And that's kind of what this passage is about. So... Let me read it. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Okay? Like a lot of times in the Bible, uh, you have to hear the bad news before you hear the good news. Okay? Here's the bad news. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. And all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Okay, that's a lot of bad news, right? You were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were by nature deserving of wrath. And this is a description really of life without Christ. It's talking about people who don't know the Lord and, and the people that are receiving this letter. They're now Christians, but they, they weren't Christians not long ago. And so uh, basically what the Apostle Paul, he's writing from a Roman prison, probably about 60 A.D., about 30 years after Jesus' resurrection. And he writes to them and he says, before you came to know Jesus, before you became followers of Christ, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Bad news. In fact, he gives here three marks of unbelievers. One thing he says is uh, those who are dead in transgressions of sins, uh, he says you used to live... uh, you followed the ways of this world. And, and that's one of the things, we have to realize this. The Bible says God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life, John three sixteen. God loves the world, but the world is fallen. <clears throat> the world is broken. The world is rebellious against God and the things of God and the ways of God. God loves that world, but it, it's not to say that world is good. So the picture we get here is the Apostle Paul says, you were dead in transgressions and sins, and one of the marks of that is you followed the ways of this world. You were conformed to the world, and you know we're seeing this uh, not only in Asia or in communist countries, we're seeing this increasingly, I think, in our country, where the ways of the world seem to be increasingly godless. I don't know, do you get that impression? Like it seems to be becoming increasingly unpopular to to be a Christian and to talk about Jesus and to read the Bible and to share the Bible. And I don't know, our our culture has shifted where it used to be kind of, you know, most people said they're Christians or went to church and considered themselves Christians. And I think what we're seeing now is the culture has shifted where I think Christians are increasingly being marginalized and it's kind of becoming more difficult to be a faithful Christian, or at least to, to be a visible faithful Christian, you could risk being ostracized or uh, being ridiculed or being rejected or maybe even losing your job. So I feel like it's not just in Asia or, or other countries that what's happening in our country as well is that those people that would say, you know what, I belong to Jesus and I'm going to live for him and I'm going to be faithful to him and I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation. Those people, I think, are... Um, hopefully not going to become rare, but I think they're going to be more and more distinct. You know how Jesus says, you're the light of the world? Well, you think about this, light shines brightest when it's darkest. 
And this is a time where I think uh, there's going to be increasing darkness. You know, we see uh, violence and wars and rumors of wars and, and all of that. And I think this is a time when the light of Jesus in Jesus' people is going to have to shine. And for that to happen, though, we've got to know what we believe. And we've got to understand and we've got to be committed to it. Let's talk about this. Paul starts off and he says, here's the bad news. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. One mark of that is you followed the ways of the world and you were conformed to the world around you. Another mark of, of unbelievers, he says, is you obeyed Satan. You followed the ways of this world, verse 2, and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Who is that? That's the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. The Bible is very clear about this. There is a supernatural evil power, not as powerful as God, but way more powerful than us. Sometimes he's called the devil. Sometimes he's called Satan. He is called the accuser. He is called the deceiver of the brethren. He is called a liar. He's called the father of lies. And he's all out to deceive people, to draw them away from God, to prevent them from coming to Jesus. And what it says here is, when you were dead in your transgressions and sins, you not only followed the ways of the world, but you were under the influence of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. So there's going to, time, there's going to come a time when God will totally vanquish Satan and evil, but that day is not this day. And in this day, uh, the evil one has a certain power in this world. He's called the kingdom of the air. And back then, the air meant the space around the world. So to say that he's the, uh, the spirit who is at work in those who are disobedient and he's the ruler of the kingdom of the air means basically that he has power over this, over this earth, much of this earth. Uh, sometimes he's called uh, the prince of this world. Right? So here's what's happening. He's not as powerful as God, but he's way more powerful than us. And he is basically working to sow a spirit of disobedience and rebellion in people. Sometimes we, we, we think, why doesn't this person come to know Jesus? I mean, you know, they're surrounded by a Christian family. Tons of people are praying for them. Uh, God has blessed them. Why don't they come? And, and, you know, their willpower, their will is involved, their volitional choices. But you know what else is involved? There is an evil, powerful spirit that is trying to keep them away from God. Sometimes he does it through deception. Sometimes he does it through accusation. Sometimes he just sows a seed of bitterness and anger in people and hardness of heart. And so uh, we have to realize this, that we are in a spiritual world and we're in a spiritual war. So he says here, the people who are dead in transgressions and sins, they follow the ways of this world and they're under the influence of the ruler of the kingdom of the air who is at work. He's working hard to influence those to be people to be disobedient to God. Third characteristic of them, they follow the way of the world, they obey Satan. Third characteristic is also they gratify the cravings of their flesh. Verse 3, all of us also lived among them at one time. And Paul, I, I love this, there's a sense of humility here. He's saying, I'm, I'm not, you know, one-upping you. He says, all of us were in that state. All of us used to be dead in our transgressions and sins. All of us used to cave into the conformity to the world. All of us were under the influence of the evil one. And he says, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh. Some Bible translations would call that sinful nature. We, we gratified the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. 
Now, here's the picture the Bible is giving us. We basically have a sinful nature, which is why we're prone to disobedience and rebellion and unkindness. We have a sinful nature that's basically self-centered, that wants to place ourselves on the altar as God rather than the Lord God himself. And he says, you've got that sinful nature. Now, when you come to Christ, here's what happens. The Holy Spirit comes in you. You receive a new nature. If anyone is in Christ, they become a new creation. But I think that old nature, the sinful nature, which is called in the Bible the flesh, still is with you and and can still tempt you. So he calls it the the cravings of the flesh. And and we can just gratify those. Uh, It could be discord. It could be selfishness. It could be greed. uh, It could be lack of compassion. uh, It could be disbelief, unbelief. But he says... We used to just gratify the cravings of our flesh. It's the sinful nature. Our natural state without God is to be self-centered. It's to be enslaved to our own desires. Uh, sometimes we think, well, you know, why do I do things that I know are not good or unhealthy? Or why do I keep falling into it? Why do I hurt the people most who I love the most? And, you know, there, there is the world. There's the flesh, the sinful nature, and there's the devil. So we are in this battle. And it's always trying to draw us away from God. And he says, like the rest, the other people of the world, we were by nature deserving of wrath. So that's the the dark picture here of where we are without Jesus. People say, well, why do you need Christ? Can't you just believe in God? Here's our situation, dead in trespasses and sins, following the ways of the world, under the influence of Satan and the evil one, and following the passions and desires of our own sinful nature. Someone described it this way. He said, once you become a Christian, you can kind of picture it like this. You've got a new nature, but you've kind of got that old nature that's still tugging at you, trying to pull you away from God and righteousness and goodness. And Somebody pictured it this way. It says, imagine that on your right shoulder is a big dog, a good dog, and on your other shoulder is a bad dog. And one dog wants to move you toward goodness, and the other dog wants to move you toward evil and selfishness and unkindness and maybe violence and addiction and degradation and impurity and 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 so you got these two natures you got these two dogs on your shoulder and which one is going to get stronger and which one's going to get weaker well obviously whichever one you feed is going to get stronger right and and so the bible says don't sow to the flesh don't 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 give seeds and fuel to the flesh to your evil nature. You, you feed that nature, you indulge yourself, and you just get deeper, deeper into the sin. Jesus says whoever sins becomes a slave to sin. It's not just innocent. It's, sin is the ultimate deadly addiction. And so as we yield to sin, whether it's you know, impure thoughts or actions or selfishness or greed or whatever it is, as we, the more we indulge it, the, the more it gets a grip on us. Right? We become addicted to sin and selfishness and self-centeredness and greed. So God wants to set us free. So he says, don't feed the flesh. Don't sow to the flesh. Rather, what you've got to do is go closer. You've got to feed the good dog. In other words, you've got to live close to God. Stay close to Jesus. Um, be in his word. Be in the fellowship of believers. Worship him regularly. And pray for the Holy Spirit to fill you. And if we do that, what happens is the grip of the flesh uh, gets weaker and weaker because we're feeding our spirit, not the flesh. 
Okay, so, so this is what Paul is saying. He says, by nature, we're a mess. By nature, you're spiritually dead. It doesn't mean like, oh, you just made a few mistakes or you've got some faults. He says, spiritually, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. It means you're dead, you're doomed, uh, you, have, you, are, you are completely spiritually unresponsive, alienated from God, without God and without hope in the world, incapable of experiencing God's life. That's our sorry plight, and it's painted for us in such dark colors in the verse three, three verses. Now, this passage turns in verse 4, and it turns with, in English, the word but, but God did something about it. Uh, verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Now, did you notice in those verses, verses 4 to 7, the repetition of this idea of God's great love, God is rich in mercy, he's reached out to us by grace, by the incomparable riches of his grace, he has changed our lives, his kindness to us. So this is what we need to see. Some people think, well, I could never come to God. I could never trust him because he's probably angry at me. He probably knows all the ways I've messed up. He probably knows the bad choices I've made. And he's probably, you know, maybe he's given up on me. See, and this is where we need to be people of the Bible. Because I said Satan is the deceiver, right? He's not only a liar, but he's the father of lies. He is also called the accuser of the brethren. He always wants to condemn you. He wants to tell you, you're no good. After what you've done, God could never forgive you. Or, or why, should, why should the Lord be worried about you? Why should he care about you? You're nothing, right? And when we get these messages and we internalize them and all they do is drag us down and drive us away from God. And instead, we need to counteract that with the truth of God. Here's what the truth of God is. Because of his great love for you, God who is rich in mercy made you alive with Christ even when you were dead in transgressions. Now, if you're dead, you can't really improve yourself, right? In fact, you can't work your way to heaven. You can't earn God's favor. There's nothing you can do to deserve salvation. You're dead. If you're dead, the only way you can know God is if God makes you alive, if God brings you to life. And the, our passage is saying that's exactly what he did. That's exactly what he did. We were totally helpless, dead in transgressions and sins, by nature deserving of wrath. But God, you think about this. Okay, God created people of all creation. Only, only people were made in his image and his likeness, right? And when people rebelled against him and basically turned their back on him and walked away from him, it's, it's like looking at your creator and spitting in his face. It's like saying, I don't care about you. You may have made me, but I don't want to know you. I don't want to be in relationship with you. I, I, want to, I want to be my own man. I want to be my own woman. I want to call my own shots, right? You know, you know in the Garden of Eden, when, when God said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except one. You know what the one tree that was forbidden? It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you know what's going on there? See, before then, they relied on God to tell them what was right and wrong, what was good and evil. 
right? They were trusting in God. They were leaning on him. They were walking in close relationship with him. And whatever God says was good, was good. And whatever God said was okay, was okay. And whatever God says, avoid that, stay away. They, they were just leaning on him, trusting in him, walking closely with him. But then there came a day where they said, you know what? Who is God to tell me? I want to I decide for myself what's right and wrong. I want to decide for myself what's good and evil. Right? I know what's best for me. It doesn't matter what God thinks. Well, that's eating from the tree, the forbidden tree, the knowledge of good and evil. And at that point, you know what happened? Their relationship with their creator became severed. And their lives became fractured. And their relationship with one another became broken as well. Now they're blaming each other. Adam, the first time he saw Eve, he said, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Speaking of great warmth and intimacy and affection. But now he's saying, you know, God, not my fault. The woman you gave me, she made me eat the forbidden fruit, right? Now there's blaming and, and all that stuff. And after that, things just spiraled downhill. And so, like I said, the theme of Ephesians is God is putting it back together. God's plan, his cosmic plan is to unite all things together in Christ, to sum them up and unite them in Christ. But it has to start, it has to start with the first step is the fulfillment of God's plan to raise people spiritually from death to life. And that's what we see. The, the whole passage turns in verse 4 because now God is giving life. And here's what he does. Uh, verse 5 God gave us life. Because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It's by grace you've been saved. So there's nothing we could do to, to bring spiritual birth to ourselves, right? There's nothing we could do to give ourselves spiritually life. There's nothing we could do to, to reunite ourselves and reconcile our relationship that has become broken with our creator. God has to do something. He could have written us off. He could have easily said, you know what? Forget you. I'm fed up with you. You have sinned repeatedly. I keep reaching out to love you, and you've rejected me. You've taken me for granted. You've ignored me. You've worshipped other gods. And, and, you know, he could have easily just said, heck with you. I'm done. Right? Why didn't he? Why didn't he? Our, our passage tells us it's because of his great love for us. It's because he's rich in mercy. And you know what mercy means, that, that, the word there? It means loving kindness. It means compassion. The word his great love for us, that word love is, is the Greek word agape or agapeo. You know what that word is? It means selfless love that seeks the best for others. It's not the kind of love that says, oh, I love you, which really means I love me and I want you. Right? It's the selfless love that seeks the best of others. So this is the nature of God. Great love, agape love for us, rich in mercy, and because of that, he made us alive. He made us alive with Christ. Not only that, but it says in verse 6, and God raised us up with Christ. Just like Christ was resurrected from the dead, people who are spiritually dead in their transgressions and sins can be raised up with Christ in resurrection, to experience new life. It even says in verse 6, and he seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. And what does that mean? You know, after Jesus was crucified, and on the third day he was resurrected from the dead, 
And then for 40 days, he made appearances as the resurrected Lord to his disciples and his followers. And then at the end of those 40 days, he ascended into heaven, right? And when he ascended into heaven, the Bible says that he sat down at the right hand of God, that he took his place in the heavenlies. And now we're told, did you catch this? God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not there physically yet, but he's talking about our status and position. It's like now our position is you're not just a, a waste. You're not a nothing. You're not a nobody. You know who you are? You're, you're a child of the King of Kings, and you're seated in the heavenlies with Jesus. It means that, that we share uh, his rule, his reign. We share this uh, exalted status now as the children of God, members of his family, members of his household. And so we're to, I think, you know what? I think we're supposed to start seeing ourselves differently. There's all kinds of people in this world that want to define us. You know, you're successful, you're not successful, you're well-educated, you're pretty, you're not, all that stuff, right? Uh, why don't we just let God define us? Here's what God says. I've given you life. I've raised you up. You're, now you're a new creation in Christ. I've seated you in the heavenlies with Christ. And you have this position now of uh, authority and a position of goodness. And, and why has he done this? Verse 7. I want to read verse 7 in the New Living Translation. The reason God has done this, besides the fact that he loves us, it says, So God can point to us in all future ages as examples of the incredible wealth of his grace and kindness toward us, as shown in all he has done for us who, who are united with Christ Jesus. You know, God has done this. He's unfolded this plan uh, because he loves us and because of his mercy, but also because he wants to point to us as examples of his incredible grace and kindness. In other words, we're to be, in a sense, models. We're to be on display uh, so that people can look at us and see something of the goodness of God. And I don't know how that works. I was just thinking this out. Like may maybe they think, oh man, you were such a jerk. You were so selfish. You were so materialistic. You were all about yourself. And I'm seeing some changes in you. Right? Why? Because the goodness and kindness of God has come into your life. Maybe before you were always trying to prove yourself. You were so stubborn. You were so self-centered. But now the grace of God, the mercy of God, you're starting to realize that I've received what I could never earn, that, that, I, that I've been forgiven by a holy God even though I didn't deserve it. And, and God begins to, he puts his Holy Spirit in you. He, sa he says when anyone is in Christ, there's a new creation. And he, he says, behold, I'm making everything new. He says that we've been raised with Christ like we've been resurrected from being spiritually dead. And so now in this new life, we're to live this new life in this new identity. And part of it, he says, is that we then become examples to others of the incredible wealth of God's grace and kindness toward us. It's a wonderful thing. Now, how do we get there? How, how do we get this new life? And, and, and the Bible is very clear here that it's, it has nothing to do with our merit or our deserving or our qualifications or our works, or our righteousness, or how religious we are. Look at verse 8. Verse 8, Ephesians 2, verse 8. This is probably one of the most famous verses in the Bible. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. And it's not by works so that no one can boast. Now, 
I don't know about you, that's kind of humbling, right? To say, you know, for some of us, maybe in my culture, we always want to feel like anything we get, we deserved it. Anything we get, we earned it. In fact, it, you know, if you give me a gift, I'm supposed to give you a gift that's worth even more, right? And, and, it, and we don't want to receive something that we didn't deserve, or we don't want to receive something that we can't pay back. I think some of that is pride, but a lot of it is built into our, uh, our culture or our family background. Now, here's the thing. Some people never come to Christ because the only way to come to Christ is to receive a gift that you didn't deserve. And they're too proud to, to receive that. The only way to come to Christ is to receive a gift that you can't earn and you can't pay back. And that, and that means you've got to humble yourself. You've got to come to God and say, Lord, I, I need what you can give, but I could never obtain it by myself. I could never earn it. I could never deserve it. I could never work hard enough. I could never do enough good works. And so I come needing your grace. Now, fortunately, the Lord says, it's by grace you're saved. So if you come in need of grace, then you can be saved. If you would just admit, I'm a sinner, I need a savior, and I can't save myself, and so Lord, I need what you can give. Now, it does say it's, you're saved by grace through faith. So some people think, well, faith, I mean, that's my work, right? And I can look down on you because I had faith and you didn't, and I'm a Christian and you're not, and it's all because of my faith. Now, here's what the Bible's saying. You look at this carefully. It says, it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It's the gift of God. Even our faith is a gift of God. It's not a merit. Faith is not a merit that, that you put forth to, to deserve salvation or achieve salvation. You know what faith is? Faith is the empty hand that God fills. You know what I mean? If somebody wants to give you a gift, a wonderful gift, and they say, hey, I got a gift for you, hold out your hands. You say, oh, no, you know, I, I got my hands full of my own stuff, right? You say, okay, you don't want the gift, you don't want the gift, but it's free, and you don't deserve it, but you're going to have to come ready to receive, right? And for some of us, our, eye, our, our hands are so full of our own stuff, our own ego, our own ambition, our own pride, our own stubbornness, that we never would come to God with open hands. And we never receive what God wants to give us. So you're saved by grace through faith. Faith is the empty hands. But it's the empty hands that God fills, and he will fill it. You're saved by grace through faith. So if you never received him, you got to just humble yourself and say, Lord, I'm ready to receive. By faith, your, your body given on the cross for me, your blood shed on the cross for me, uh, you have atoned for my sins so that I don't have to, and I couldn't anyway. But Lord, I need grace. You know what grace is? Undeserved love, unmerited favor. It's, it's love and grace and mercy for the undeserving. And, and until you humble yourself and say, that's me, I'm undeserving, but I'm ready to receive, you'll never experience the life that God wants to give you. So he says, by grace are you saved through faith. It's not from yourselves, it's God's gift. It's not by works so that no one can boast. And you know what that's going to do? That's going to put us all on level ground. Some people don't want to be on level ground. You ever heard this expression, at the foot of the cross, the ground is always level? You know what that means? 
when you come to the foot of the cross and Jesus is there dying on the cross for your sins, it, it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor or educated or not or you have status and position and prestige or not. Everybody comes as a sinner in need of grace. Everybody comes as one who is spiritually dead in their trespasses and sins and their only hope is what that man does for you, the sacrifice he makes on your behalf. So the ground is level at the foot of the cross. If we're all saved by grace through faith, there's no room for boasting. There's no room for pride. There's no room for competition. There's no room for arrogance. In fact, I think this. I think people who are saved ought to be the most humble of all. Because we know that we live because of a gift that we didn't deserve. We know that we live because of the sheer mercy and grace of God. And we ought to be humble, and we ought to be grateful, and then we will be changed. See, the Christian life is not about getting your act together, and it's not about trying to change yourself to make yourself more religious or more righteous. You know what it is? It's about being broken and empty and needy and coming to God and saying, I need you. I need your mercy. I need your grace. I need your forgiveness. Lord, fill these empty hands. Come into my life. Fill this empty life with meaning and purpose, with joy, with the peace that the world cannot give. It comes to people who would say, I need grace. I need mercy. Now, here's what God says. You're saved. And the word saved doesn't just mean you get to go to heaven when you die. The word saved... Uh, it means wholeness. It means well-being. It, it means the fullness of life. Like when Jesus said, I have come to give life and to give it abundantly. Uh, salvation in the Bible is not just a spiritual thing. It has to do with the goodness of, of life and the well-being of life. It means that you begin to enter into the experience of life as God intended it for you when he made you. And, and, and we've lost it and we've missed it and now God wants to restore it. What does it mean to live in a face-to-face, -face, intimate, free, fearless, loving encounter with your creator and to experience the life that he created you for? It's good news. It's good news. Now, verse 10, the last verse, it says, we are God's handiwork. This could be translated, we are God's workmanship. In fact, it could even be translated, we are God's work of art. We are God's masterpiece. Do you realize that's who you are in Christ? We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus, and only God can create in this sense. We are created. It's like we're, we're made new. We're, we're new creation in Christ. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And some of you are going, wait, wait, time out, time out. Didn't you just make a big point about saying how we're not saved by works? And I did, because the Bible does. However, this is what the Bible is saying. You're not saved by works, but you are saved for good works. Does that make sense? Uh, my works have nothing to do with earning salvation or deserving salvation or obtaining salvation. But when you really are saved by the grace of God and you receive his love and acceptance and forgiveness and you receive his word, and you receive his Holy Spirit to live within you, uh, then you begin to live as God created you to live, which is not a selfish, self-centered, materialistic, greedy life. 
It's not a small life that's only concerned about myself. It's a life of, of graciousness and gratitude and generosity. And what we're told in verse 10 is that you're God's masterpiece and he created you or recreated you in Christ Jesus to do good works. In other words, God does want us to, to live a, a meaningful life, a significant life that's of good to others. He does call us to a life of service and a life of mercy and a life of pursuing compassion and a life of working for justice. Now, those are good works we do not to earn God's favor. We do that out of gratitude. Uh, we do that because when we do that, when we live that way, we're living the way that God prepared us to live. We're God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. So as we give ourselves to ministry and to service and to mission and to feeding the hungry and to combating slavery, we're living into the works that God has prepared for us to do. It's not drudgery. It's not just duty and obligation. It has to do with fulfilling your purpose. It has to do with living that abundant life that Jesus came to give us. You think about the way Jesus lived. It was a life of joy and peace, but also a life of servanthood, of washing feet and feeding hungry people and casting out demons and combating uh, societal injustice and ultimately sacrifice for the good of others. That's the life we're called into. Now, let me say this. If you are, are one of those people who suffers with self-condemnation, can you see how this passage wants to set you free, how God wants to set you free? Maybe you need to just stand in front of a mirror and say, I am God's handiwork. I am God's masterpiece. I am God's work of art. Thanks be to God. Praise God. Treat yourself well because you're important to God. If you weren't, Jesus wouldn't have died for you. However, I want you to think about this as well. Wouldn't this also affect the way we treat each other? You know how we kind of judge each other and we think, oh, some people are worthwhile, some people aren't, some people are attractive, some people aren't, some people are fun to spend time with, other people aren't. And how we, how we judge people on externals and how they make us feel and all of that. But what if we saw other people and realized, you know, you're God's masterpiece. You're God's treasure. You're God's work of art. And we, and, and we treat each other that way. You see, in God's eyes, there are no little people. There are no people that don't count. There, there's nobody that he writes off and says, you know, I'm done with you. And so I'm thinking, we have to see ourselves as God's treasure. But then we've got to see each other that way too. Stop judging each other, condemning each other. And just love on each other. Treat each other with the value and respect that's bestowed on us by our loving Savior. All right, let's pray. All right, I just want you to take a minute in silence. and You might want to just offer up a silent prayer to God. Or your prayer might be just, Lord, speak to me. I want to hear you.